listening to the Miracle Word Podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth, Jr. We're going to deal with these Pentecostal doctrines of the church. What does it mean? Like if you say that, I'm Pentecostal, I'm unashamed, you know, we're pointing back to the apostles in the book of Acts as the song does. We talk about the Pentecostal experience. You know, one of the things that's interesting is um, somebody wrote yesterday, somebody wrote in the broadcast, I think it was yesterday, Pentecostal is is not a, a former sect of Christianity, it's, it's an experience. Well, in a sense, that's true, the Pentecostal experience that took place and was instituted on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter two, um, and people, believers were filled with the Holy Spirit for the first time, literally baptized with the Holy Spirit. And from that day forward, that power was available. Yes, in that sense, it's a it's an experience, but because I'm glad, Kelly, that you got that book. In, in one sense, if you go and look at all of Christianity, I'm sure you know, I'm sure you know as well as I do, that people in Christianity believe all kinds of different things. I mean, all kinds of different things. And so it's so important to know that why we believe what we believe. And here's the thing that cracks me up is that people just think that Christianity is all lumped together. But there are things that actually separate us in belief system that it's important to believe these things. Very important. And so we're going to cover some of these today, and I'm going to give you five or six that would definitely define us as Pentecostal believers. Some of them will bleed over. And other people believe the same things, especially, you know, on like salvation, stuff like that. But um, it's important to know these things anyway, because it'll help you. I'm excited for you, Becky. Thank you for ordering it. So take a minute, share it if you haven't done so, and let's jump in. Um, I want to break these down for you guys. So if you're taking notes, uh, help me in the comments, write it in your Bible, write it in a pad, whatever you've got with you, your phone. And, and, and literally, as I'm going through these, make these notes for yourself so that you can reference them. But... When we talk about Pentecostalism, what does it mean? What do we believe? What defines us? Well, let me just start at the very base level, salvation. And obviously, these are all deep issues. And so I'm not going to go into deep teaching on every doctrine of the church today. I'm going to give you a small overview of, of each one so that you understand and, and know what we believe. I want to start with salvation um, because salvation, the, the way we believe in salvation um, is definitely different than some of our other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Um, one of the reasons that is true is because <clears throat> you'll have a huge divide between um, some of our brothers and, <clears throat> and sisters that we would call Reformed believers. These may be Baptists, they may be Presbyterians, um, but a Reformed Calvinist, they believe in salvation in a little bit of a different way, the approach to salvation, than we would as Pentecostal uh, believers. And here's why. Because those that are Reformed Calvinists believe that nobody has anything to do with their own salvation. Meaning, um, and this is the technical term if you want to know it, they believe in something called monergistic salvation. It's one-sided. It's all from God's side. He sees you. He predestines you. He elects you. He lets you hear the gospel. And once you hear it, 
You can't resist the pull of the gospel. You will believe. You will come into the kingdom. He makes you alive uh, and then keeps you in his hand for the rest of eternity. And you'll never leave. If you're truly saved and elected by God, you will never leave the faith and you'll be secure in your eternity for the rest of time. And uh, it's all one-sided. And that's how they would believe. Those of us that are Pentecostals do not believe that way. And of course, if you were to talk to those people, they would say, well, you know, it's impossible for a a true Christian to lose their salvation. Um, Not because they don't believe it's, it's possible for Christians to never sin, but what they believe is if you're truly saved, then you'll continue living holy in acts of righteousness for the rest of your life. And those that go back into living in sin were never truly saved in the first place. But then when you come to our side of the road, those of us that are Pentecostals and Charismatics, we believe that <clears throat> salvation is not one-sided. It's not all just about God. That the gospel itself, as Paul said, Romans chapter 1, is the power of God unto salvation. So that when a person hears the gospel, it gives them faith to believe. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that's in context, by the way, Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, where Paul is teaching how a person gets saved. A preacher comes to them, preaches about Christ. They hear and understand and are able to believe the preaching of the gospel and therefore able to confess with their mouth and believe in their heart. So it's a progression. And so Paul Paul teaches that the preaching of the gospel gives a person faith to believe, and then it is your responsibility to not only hear the gospel, but when you hear it, believe it is truth. And then you've got to take an action, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. And if you do, the Bible says you shall be saved. And so there's God's part and then there's our part. And, um, yeah, that's, that's actually a very good point. And I've, I have discussed that with people, Cody, um, the question, how do they explain apostates or people that leave the faith in case, in fact, in end times Bible prophecy, one of the things the Bible says will happen is that there will be many people that will fall away from the faith. People will fall away from the, the true faith. Well, you can't fall away from something that you were never really a part of in the first place. You can't fall away from something that you were never a part of in the first place. And the Bible says that that will happen. The people will leave the faith. And so um, it's it's an interesting thing. But the nice thing is both of us believe that we are saved by grace through faith, that it's not by works. Uh, we believe in, in salvation in that way. But there is a difference. For example, the main difference is if somebody returned to living in sin, those on the reform side would say that they were never really saved in the first place. Those of us on the Pentecostal side that we would see somebody fall back into sin, we would, of course, say that they are backslidden and that they've turned their back on God and gone back into living a life of sin because we believe in the free will of the believer, the free will of man, whereas they do not believe in that in that case. And so we have a belief system that somebody can turn their back on God, truly be saved, but then go back into a life of sin, which is what Paul warned many of the churches about in his letters. Don't go go back to living in sin. Should we continue living in sin? Absolutely not. You know, he teaches the churches 
uh, from that perspective. So it's it's very under, important to understand that we as Pentecostal charismatic believers believe that we do play a, a role in our salvation in the fact that we have to believe the gospel and that we have to confess with our mouth, believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Someone asked earlier, then what's the point of evangelism if they believe that way? What's the point in spreading the good news if God has already pre-elected all of those that will be saved? And I've heard several um, you know, well-known Reformed Calvinists speak on that subject, and the answer that they have for that is the reason that we that we evangelize the we the reason we preach the gospel is because the bible says to do it that's their answer just because we're commanded to that's why we do it and so i mean obviously the bible giving us instruction is enough to do anything so i agree with them in that sense that you know if the bible commands you to do something you better do it um but <clears throat> we also know that of course, what we believe, if we don't preach the gospel, if people don't hear the truth of the good news, then there is no way to be saved. And of course, they believe that as well. It's just that they believe that all that God have has elected will hear the good news and will not be able to resist it when they hear it. Whereas we believe that it is our job as the church to follow the great commission and preach the gospel to every nation and those that believe are baptized will be saved. And if we don't do our job, then people will unnecessarily go to hell and it'll be our fault, not God's fault, that when we stand before him, there'll be opportunities we've missed. There'll be things that we have caused to go the way God did not desire for them to go. He's willing that none should perish, but some will perish. But it's through our obedience and dedication to the Great Commission as we preach the gospel that men and women are saved. And uh, I don't make, I don't ever try to make a, a massive uh, uh, dividing line about this subject. And I always just say it this way: as long as I have brothers and sisters that are Reformed Calvinists, as long as they're living holy and preaching the gospel, I've got no issue with them. Because if you're not using that belief system as a a disguise to live in sin because you know your sin doesn't matter, which they don't believe, or using that belief system to not evangelize and to be a lazy Christian, then I've got no issue with you. If you are living for the Lord and if you're preaching the gospel, winning souls, then I, I applaud you and I say thank God for your life. But if you're using that belief system as a way to live an unholy lifestyle or as a way to just be very lazy in winning souls and reaping the harvest of those that are lost, then you're using it as a crutch, not as a true belief system of godliness, but as a crutch. And those those of us that are Pentecostal have a burning desire. We have a burning desire to see people saved, knowing that Jesus is coming and that there's a truth to be preached that without the gospel, men will go to hell. That if somebody does not have the gospel preached unto them, then there's not. Paul made this uh, made this point in Romans chapter 10. If someone does not have the gospel preached unto them, they've got no way to be saved. And that's why, especially me as an evangelist, I have such uh, um, an urgency on the inside of me to see people saved. I understand that time is running out, that we're living in the final moments of time. Jesus is coming back and we're seeing signs of his return all around us. But until he comes, we've got to do the work of him who sent us while it's yet day. That's John chapter nine and verse four. 
Yeah. So um, Amanda's asking the question, but what about those who didn't have a chance to hear us preach the gospel? You've said that through the beauty of this world, there is no way to not know God exists. So let me answer Amanda's question because it's a very good question, Amanda. And she's asking in regards to what I, what I was teaching previously from Romans chapter one, Paul taught Amanda and for everybody that's watching that there's no other way. Of course, we know there's no other way into heaven except through Jesus Christ. He is the door. He's the door. There's no other way, but through him. But if someone, Paul makes this, if you read Romans chapter 10 in its fullness, you'll understand the context of what Paul's teaching is. Uh, If people don't hear the gospel, they don't have any ability to believe on a message that would save them. That is the gospel. And that's why Paul said in Romans chapter one and verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. He's teaching the Roman church that without the gospel, there can be no salvation, which is why we're commanded to preach it. And so for those that don't hear the gospel, and I want to be very clear on this, for those that do not ever hear the gospel, they will go to hell because there's no way to be saved without the gospel message. Now, she's referencing Romans chapter 1 where Paul is teaching that just through creation alone, that any person can look at creation and they do not have a right to declare that there is no God because there's enough evidence in creation, that there is a God that you don't have the right to say that there's not. However, let me just go on to further say, seeing the proof of God in creation is not enough to be saved. If it was, we wouldn't need to preach the gospel. It's just enough that you don't have an excuse to say, well, I didn't know there was a God. No, he made himself known to you through creation. And in fact, if you have your Bible Let's let's open to Romans chapter one quickly, and I'll make a I'll just do a quick reading here, and uh, I want you to see it with me. <clears throat> it's very very important that we see it, and uh, let's start with verse eighteen, Romans one eighteen. Listen, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. You see that? It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, this is verse 20, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. See that? They're without excuse. So just by seeing the uh, creation of the world, the, the the elements of creation, they are without excuse. And so it's important to understand that. Very important to understand that. Um, Alicia is asking, sorry, I'm not asking. Let me go back in, in case that was, uh, I missed it. Where is the, uh, good question. Where is the line drawn between backslidden but saved and saved once, but turned on God to such a degree that basically serving Satan, or is this not known? Um, I would say when somebody just walks away from God and is living in unrepentant sin, unrepentant sin, just living however they want and don't even have the, the, don't even acknowledge the conviction in their heart that the Holy Spirit's convicting them of sin and just continue on living in unrepentant sin, I would say that those people have turned their back on God. 
It's not that they've that God took their salvation from them. It's that they've walked away from repentance. They've walked away from the sacrifice that Jesus made. And of course, it's different for every person. And I would say it's a dangerous thing to get to a place, Alicia, where you're living in unrepentant sin and don't care even to repent or ask God for forgiveness. That you don't, you know, one of the things that's very dangerous is where you don't ever feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit for sins you're committing. And you don't feel that same burden that you used to feel. That's a dangerous place to be. Where the Bible says you harden your heart. It's a very, very dangerous place where you continue to live in such sin that you've hardened your heart and no longer feel the prick of conviction from the Holy Spirit, which is why we try to keep ourselves in the mindset of the holiness of God, of what he expects. The Bible says with without holiness, no man will see the Lord without holiness. So God does expect, and let me just make a point here. This is why the hyper grace message preached by many is such a dangerous, and I mean dangerous, a dangerous demonic message that's being preached. It's demonic and it's dangerous. Any doctrine, any doctrine that makes a Christian comfortable with sin is a demonic doctrine. And this is being preached by well-known ministers around the world that once you're saved, your past, present, and future sins are forgiven and nothing you do matters. Nothing you do, your actions no longer have anything to do with your salvation. It's a demonic teaching. Paul, not only not only did Paul write back to the churches rebuking them, but Jesus showed up to the churches in Revelation and rebuked them for the way they were living. Read Revelation chapter two and chapter three. Thank you, brother Ben. And Jesus rebuked those churches and said, if you don't change your actions, I will come back and I will remove your candlestick from among the churches. I'll remove you. So Jesus gave them a warning. That's grace. He gave them mercy, gave them a warning, a rebuke. But he said, if you don't change, you've got to go back to the way you used to do things. Return, return to the former way of living. If you don't, I will come back and remove your candlestick from among the churches. Very important that you see this. Not only did Paul rebuke uh, Christians, you know what Paul, Paul wrote into, um, wrote to the church in Corinth and they had a, a young man there that was sleeping with his, uh, stepmother and, um, bragging about it. And Paul said, rebuke him, warn him. And if he doesn't listen to you, finally, he wrote him and said, he said, uh, kick him out, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his soul. Now this was a Christian who was in the church in Corinth and was blatantly sinning and bragging about his gross misconduct. And the Bible says, Paul the apostle wrote by inspiration of the Holy Spirit and said, because he's not listened to correction, because he's not listened to the warnings and he will not abide by the doctrine of the church, kick him out. He's been warned. He's been given. He's, you know what? You don't want sin to spread through the body of Christ. He said, kick him out and turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his soul hoping that that would be enough to then shock him back into realizing. See, shock him back into realizing that his life is out of order. Then, of course, we know in the second letter of the Corinthians, he said, you've, you've rejected him long enough, now bring him back in and restore him. 
And so understand this. It's very, 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 very important to understand salvation. It matters how you believe about salvation and how you believe about sin. Sin is a killer. It kills everything it touches. If you allow sin to be in your life, unrepentant sin will destroy your life. It'll destroy everything. People that allow sin in their body, destroys their body. People that allow sin in their mind, destroys their mind. Allow sin in their finances, allow sin in their relationships, it destroys them. It's a killer. It's a killer. And so I want you to see this. Yeah, exactly. I I understand totally what Amanda is talking about. Um, Amen. Yeah, that, that's such a heretical thing. Because if if here's the here's the thing, and this is why they have to completely ignore people that preach on the hyper grace message that your past, present, and future sins are already forgiven and your actions don't matter. That's why they have to redissect first John. It's why they have to manipulate and mutilate first John and say that the first chapter is not for Christians. Because if what they believe is really true then there's no, there's no reason for a Christian to ever ask for forgiveness for a sin. There's no reason for a Christian to ever uh, ask for, you know, when they feel that conviction or when they do something wrong, there's no reason for them to repent. So they always have to say, well, First John, uh, the first chapter is not really written to Christians. It's written to Gnostics, which is ridiculous. It's not, it's not true. It's not written to Gnostics. First John chapter 1 Verse nine, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So understand something. It's very interesting that when, when John wrote this letter, there were no chapter breaks. There were no, there were no chapter breaks. It was all one letter. And so Paul didn't, or John didn't say, you know, when my first chapter's done, now I'm speaking to uh, Christians. There were no chapters. There were no verses till about the 1500s. So to, to think that, well, the first chapter is written to Gnostics, but the rest of the chapter, the whole, it was one letter that he wrote to believers. It has nothing to do with somebody that's not a believer. You read first John one, nine, if we confess our sins, it's written to believers, it's written to believers. And so I want you to understand this very important that you understand it. It makes a difference. What you believe about salvation, what you believe about sin, what you believe about holiness. And the old time Pentecostals were hardcore on holiness to the sum, to the point where they almost got over it too far into legalism. But let me just say something. The, the longer I live, the longer I live, I start to realize I would more, I would rather, let me just say it this way. I would rather err on the side of holiness and to the point of legalism than I would to err on the side of liberality to the point of unholiness. What do I mean by that? Well, there's these people all through the body of Christ today that are so big on Christian liberties. You've got people that are, are, are drinking. You've got people that are sitting around smoking weed. You've got people that are sitting around, I mean, just basically doing whatever they want as Christians. And, and basically talking about their Christian liberties. Well, there's nothing wrong with this. You know, I see Christians drinking all the time on social media. And I wonder to myself this question. Not that it's wrong to have a glass of wine because we know people did it in the Bible. But the Bible does say it is wrong to be drunk. I don't drink alcohol. I've never drank alcohol. I don't believe you should as a believer. I think it's a foolish thing to do. Because here's the question. If it's wrong to be drunk... Who determines 
what drunk is. Let me ask you that question. Let me ask you that question. Who determines what drunk drunk is? Is it the government? So if it's, you know, if you're going to drink, because every, you know, you realize it's different. Being able to drink on an empty stomach will change your body differently than if you drank after eating a meal or depending on your body weight, you know, depending on male, female, your size of your body. You understand all those things matter. So you're going to say that you're going to always do some kind of a, a test on yourself to make sure that your body has not become drunk. Because what you're really doing is you say, I'm just going to see how close I can get to drunkenness, which is strictly forbidden in the Bible and condemned. But you know what? I don't think it's that big of a deal anyway. What you're saying is you don't think the word of God's that big of a deal. You don't think obeying the word of God. And how do you actually obey the command by Peter to be sober and vigilant? I don't want anything in my life to steal my ability to be sober and vigilant, to be focused on what I'm doing. I don't want anything dulling my senses. That's foolishness. I'm not a slave to any substance, and I never will be. Well, brother, we just do it socially. Good. If you're doing it socially, how do you ensure that you never even approach drunkenness? How do you ensure it? Do you, have, do you literally sit every time you socially drink, do you sit around with a breathalyzer? I mean, it's foolishness. It's getting close to the line. It's getting close to the line. So I, you know, it's called, I agree, Lisa and Rick. It's people that don't care. They don't give a crap about God's commands and they want to see how close that's liberality. They want to see how close in their Christian liberty they can get to doing things that are not without actually sinning. But more I live, the more I realize how much the early Pentecostals had it right to living in holiness to the point of legalism. I would rather be in error trying to please God than, than be in error walking away from the commands of God. Does that make sense to you that are listening? Does that, does that make sense what I'm saying? I would rather be in error. I'm not saying that we have to be in error. You know, it was so, it was to the point, you know, you realize it was to the point in the, with the early Pentecostals that women couldn't wear makeup, you know, couldn't cut their hair, had the long hair that they'd tie up in a bun, no makeup, no jewelry was allowed, you know, well, what were they doing? <laughs> Part of it, scripturally, the understanding uh, things about the woman's hair being the, her glory and, you know, that, that a woman should not adorn herself with makeup and jewelry and should let her righteousness be her glory. But also, you know, part of it, you know, they didn't ever want to conduct themselves in a way where they were, uh, you know, putting lust into other people. They didn't want to put, put lust into somebody else's, you know, <laughs> not, listen, there's a lot of women and men who would need makeup, <laughs> but Listen, it's not about the legalism part. It was about, it became legalism, yes. But understand they had a goal. What was their goal? The goal was, they, we want to please the Lord with our actions. That was the goal. That ended up leading them into legal, into, um, I just lost the word. How did I just lose the word? Legalism. You understand, it led them there. But what, what was the thing that led them there? Their desire to please the Lord. Their desire to please the Lord and Jamie and Phil, it did work because we, we saw all those women without makeup and my God, it worked. <laughs> it worked. My grandfather said though, my grandfather who pastored 62, 62 years, he said, listen, if the barn needs painting, paint the barn. <laughs> if the barn needs painting, paint the barn.
I want to answer some of these questions because these are phenomenal questions. You know, I Andrew, that's how I, I address alcohol and marijuana. That we're, alcohol is mentioned in scripture, marijuana is not, but why, I answer the alcohol question the way I just did. Why would you want to get cl- close to displeasing the Lord? And the same with marijuana. It's a substance that uh, works on your senses. And I don't want to ever be a, a slave to any su- substance, nor do I want it to affect my ability to be sober and vigilant, ever. We're commanded to be sober and vigilant. Um, Tracy's asking, once you have it, that's when you're sealed until the day of Christ's return. Um, I will answer the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We'll move there next, but it's not, it's not, by the way, um, what some teach in the Pentecostal movement. Let me just say this. There, there, there is a sect of Pentecostals and that, that was them singing that I just put up in the video before we started, um, the United Pentecostal church. And I have friends in that denomination and others that are apostolic, meaning, uh, a couple of things They they would be some that would believe in no makeup, um, you know, the long hair, the women can't wear pants, you know, no jewelry, that kind of stuff, uh, legalism. But one of the thing, two of the things that they also believe that I would not o- agree with is this. Number one, those that are part of, of the apostolic movement or those that are in the UPC uh, denomination, they don't believe in the Trinity. They believe Jesus is all there is, just Jesus. Jesus is God. And they believe in just Jesus. So Jesus is the manifestation in the flesh of the Father in heaven. And then once he ascended into heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit of Jesus. So they, do, they deny the Trinity. They don't believe that, which I believe in the Trinity. I don't deny the Trinity. But then also, um, they believe that unless, you're, unless you speak in tongues, you're not truly saved. Unless you speak in tongues, you're not a Christian. That's what they believe. I don't believe that. The Bible doesn't teach that it takes speaking in tongues in order to be a Christian. The Bible is very clear about the prerequisites for salvation. You've got to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. Repent and turn from your sins. And so that that's the it's not the it's not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Although God's desire is that every Christian be baptized in the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues, and that's plainly taught through the book of Acts as the early church was formed. And so, yeah, I, I don't under, the benefit, uh, David Condon's asking, what's the benefit to not believing in the Trinity? The benefit is that the Bible says throughout the Old Testament that the Lord our God is one God. He is one. God is one. So they interpret that very literally and they they don't get around the fact, you know, it's, it's almost like if you were uh, debating somebody like a Muslim, who would say that Christians believe in polytheism because they have three different gods they worship. They have the Father, Jehovah, they have Jesus, the Son, and they have the Holy Spirit, who all three are called God by the church. And so you're not a monotheistic religion, you're a polytheistic religion. And that does come up in debates with uh, Muslims and other religions that claim that Christians who believe in the Trinity don't believe in one true God. And so that's probably their... um, Part of it for them, it's probably the main part, uh, is just trying to be consistent in that way with a misinterpretation of what the Trinity actually is. And so um, I'm, gu- I'm guessing anyway. I mean, that's to me, and I've not gone deeply into that with anybody. I've preached several, uh, I've preached several meetings with uh, people that are oneness. Sometimes they're called oneness, apostolic, Pentecostals. Um, and there was never a big debate about it. 
Um, so yeah, there's so many places in scripture that refute it. I mean, just Jesus baptism. You think about Jesus baptism. The Bible says, as he came up out of the water, the heavens opened up and the voice from heaven spoke, this is my beloved son. You know, who was speaking in, you know, in heaven. And then the Holy spirit came down and descended upon Jesus. And, and actually Jesus was filled with the Holy ghost. So what was he not filled with his own spirit while he was a human? You know, was he, how was, you know, was he not truly in the, in the flesh? Was he in heaven? You know, that one passage uh, refutes it. And then also look at Acts 10, 38, how God anointed Jesus with the Holy ghost and with power. You know what, who did Stephen see when he was being stoned? You know, Stephen looking into heaven, I see Jesus standing at the father's right hand. You know, so there's all kinds of passages of scripture uh, that teach the Trinity. And so we shouldn't, we shouldn't get hung up on that because that, that's a very small part of, uh, of Pentecostals um, that, that's not a widely held belief system. But we definitely don't believe that you have to be filled with the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues in order to go to heaven as they do. That's not a prerequisite for salvation, although it is God's desire. And here's where I want to transition. So the first thing, that's how we believe regarding the salvation. Number two, we believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a subsequent experience to salvation. And the reason that we make that point is because there are many people in the body of Christ who do not say, uh, yeah, no, I understand Kimberly. I'm the same and we love them. There's, it's not going to, it's not going to affect me and it's not going to affect them. You know, we're both serving Jesus. We love Jesus. We're, we're preaching Jesus and, uh, and, and trying to do the works of Christ. I'm not going to make an issue over it. I love them. Praise God for them. I pray that they, they fulfill their purpose. Um, but the other thing is this, when we talk about the baptism of the Holy spirit, and I know people may have some questions on this, um, it's important that we make the distinction that it's not uh, just a factor of salvation. You know, there's many Christians that say, well, you know, you know, I don't believe in that whole separate experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We, we have the Holy Spirit when we get saved. He plays a major part in salvation and the Holy Spirit dwells in every, uh, in every believer. Every person that gets saved has a port. And that's true. Bible teaches that without question. However, there is a separate empowering of the Holy Spirit that is taught in the book of Acts throughout the book of Acts. And not only is it taught throughout the book of Acts, but Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem for that very thing. Think about this, to wait in Jerusalem for that experience of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So Jesus understood even after his, you know, after his resurrection, people could be saved. After his resurrection, people could be saved and were new creatures. But understand this. He told them it wasn't enough to do the works he'd called them to do. That's a very important point that many people miss. If you go to the end of the book of Luke, this is what Jesus is telling them to do. And I want you to go there with me. If you have your Bible, go to the book of Luke with me and uh, let's look at what, what Jesus said. Um, Luke 24, 
And let's start uh, with verse 45. Then he, which is speaking about Jesus, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer in the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of all these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay, watch this, stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Notice that's Luke 24, 49. Stay in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. What was he saying to them? This, by the way, he said all this after his resurrection and he was speaking to believers. So what was he saying by inference to these these men? You're not yet clothed with power from on high. You're saved, you're new creations, you're on your way to heaven, but you're not yet clothed with power from on high. You're not. And so you've got to wait until... Yes, no, Jeff, that's true. Acts 2.38 does say that. A person shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit if they repent and baptize. No question, as I just said, every Christian has the Holy Spirit. Every Christian is a partaker of the Holy Spirit. You could not argue around that. There's no way. The Bible teaches every Christian is a partaker of the Holy Spirit. But there is also, as I'm teaching you now, there is an empowering that was commanded by Jesus that took place on the day of Pentecost, they were already Christians, already partakers of the Holy Spirit. But something was going to happen that would empower them for the work they had been called to do. And if you go over to Acts chapter one, what does the Bible say? Jesus, quoting the words of Jesus, Luke writes, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, you'll receive power. And so there is a separate experience of empowerment that the Bible teaches. And I'm going to show you something quickly in four passages of scripture. If you go through, well, the first one's Acts chapter two. They are all Christians. They are all Christians. They're in the upper room. They believe in the resurrection of Christ. They've been commanded by the resurrected Christ to wait there until they do what he has called them to do, which is receive power. And the day of Pentecost comes. They hear a sound from heaven, rushing mighty wind, fills the house where they're sitting, cloven tongues of fire set upon their heads, and they're all filled with the Holy Ghost and are empowered. They're empowered to do the works of Christ. They all begin to speak with other tongues and prophesy. But then if you look at the other, and by the way, right there, proof, subsequent experience. They were already saved. This is a second experience after salvation. Okay, go on to the next one. The next one is found in Acts chapter 8. And in Acts chapter 8, Philip is preaching the gospel in Samaria And the whole city is looking at the signs and wonders that are being performed. They hear the gospel that he's preaching. They believe and they are saved. Okay. In Samaria. Now, this is for those that would argue, well, yeah, that was because the day of Pentecost hadn't happened yet. But once the day of Pentecost happened, it was true for everybody when they got saved. That's not true. 
Because here in Acts chapter 8, all these people in the city are saved and they're new creatures in Christ Jesus. What is the first thing that Philip did that caused Peter and John to come from Jerusalem? He called for them so that what? They all would be filled with the Holy Ghost. And it took time for Peter and John to come from Jerusalem to Samaria. And when they got there, what did they do? They all began to lay their hands upon who? The new believers. And they were all, the Bible says, filled with the Holy Ghost. All of them. Subsequent experience to salvation. Acts chapter 10, it happened simultaneously. As they were listening to Peter preach, they not only believed and were saved, but they all began to speak with tongues and prophesy in Cornelius' house. Go to Acts chapter 19. What happened there? Paul meets those men in Ephesus in Turkey. And he says, have you, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? They said, we've not even heard there is such a thing as the Holy Spirit. So what did he do? He first baptized them in the name of Jesus Christ because they would only been baptized in John's baptism with water. So he gets them saved. And then as soon as Paul gets them saved, what does he do next? lays his hands on all 12 of the men and all 12 of them are filled with the Holy Ghost and begin to speak with other tongues and prophesy. In every experience we have in the book of Acts, it is always a subsequent experience. Now, let me answer David Condon's question. Do you believe that when Jesus breathed on the disciples in John 20, that was the moment of their salvation? Yes. Um, I don't believe they were filled with the Holy Ghost with empowerment because they would not have needed it again on the day of Pentecost if uh, Jesus had done it then. At the, that was the moment of their salvation, their regeneration. And many scholars agree that when Jesus breathed upon them and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit, it was that the moment of their regeneration or their salvation after his resurrection. So I don't believe that that was the moment they were filled with the Holy Ghost because there would have been no need for them to wait in Jerusalem. They would have just gone out doing whatever they did. But we know... <clears throat> By the way, we know that they did wait because they needed the empowerment. So it's important that we understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something. And and listen, very interesting. Yep, Jeff, that's true before they were baptized, but you don't have to be baptized in water to be saved. You should be baptized in water. But the Bible doesn't teach baptism in water is a prerequisite for salvation. Doesn't teach that at all. But some people believe that, but it's it's not scriptural. Baptism in water is not a prerequisite for salvation. If it were, how did Jesus turn to the thief who believed in him on the cross and say, today you'll be with me in paradise? How could he ensure that that man would be, he had no opportunity to be baptized in water, but Jesus gave him the, in, the assurance that after they both died, that the thief on the cross would be with him in paradise on that day. So it's important to understand that every proof we have in the New Testament, every proof is a subsequent experience to salvation. Every proof. There's no, there is no proof where somebody uh, is saved and they say, you know what? Um, you've got everything you need. Don't worry about being baptized in the Holy Ghost. See, the narrative of the book of Acts is showing us why it's important to conduct the church as the apostles were conducting the early church. It's a point to show us how they functioned 
as the New Testament church, there had never been one before. It was a newly established entity by the Holy Spirit, and nobody knew how to function. They needed the guidance of the Spirit, and they watched the apostles, they, they wash the, the apostles function. And that's how they did it. And so it's important. It's important to understand that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and by the way, the other thing that we should understand from, from looking at the book of Acts is that there was never a time where new believers were not encouraged to be baptized in the Holy Ghost. Never. New believers were always encouraged to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Notice that even the believers that Paul writes to in the churches, he writes to them with an understanding that they are already operating in spiritual gifts and in supernatural power, which you've got to have the Holy Spirit to do, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So they were already operating in those gifts throughout the churches Paul was writing to. It was never an option. Notice, did Philip, let's start with Jesus. Did Jesus give his believers an option about being baptized in the Holy Ghost? Did he ever say, hey, for those of you that are interested and that have listened to my three-week three series podcast on the baptism, and those of you that have gone through all of our covenant classes, uh, those of you, if you're still interested in being baptized in the Holy Spirit and would like to receive that experience, just go wait and drink. No, he commanded them. He commanded them to go tarry in Jerusalem until they were filled with power from on high. He commanded it. Jesus never gave a choice to any of his followers. Never, never. He commanded it. He said, you all go wait. Now, it's, it's mind-blowing to me that everybody who saw Jesus, who was his follower, who was, saw his resurrected body, they didn't all obey his command. I still to this day find that amazing because Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus showed his resurrected body to over 500 of his believers and followers at one time. And we know he gave the command, go tarry in Jerusalem. But notice, where were the rest of the 380? <laughs> Only 120 went to the upper room to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's it. Where were the other 380? Why didn't they go? Shows you that even back then, people felt that way about the Holy Spirit and didn't think it was important. But notice, there was no there was no even suggestion that Jesus was, was making it as an option for his believers. He said, you go and wait until you're filled with power. In Acts 8, Philip didn't give the new believers any option. When they got saved, he called for Peter and John who came. And when they came to Samaria, Peter and John did not have them fill out a form to see if they wanted to be filled with the Holy Ghost. None of that. He just, they laid their hands on all of the new believers and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And for those that argue, well, we don't know that they spoke with tongues in Acts chapter 8 because it doesn't say. Well, then what did Simon the sorcerer see? Because notice the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an internal, it's an internal work. It happens inside you. The evidence that you've been baptized in the Holy Ghost, the outward evidence is speaking in tongues, Bible teaches. So what was it that Simon the sorcerer saw as they were all being filled with the Holy Ghost and realized that they were and offered to buy that power with money from the apostles and got rebuked for it. 
He saw something, an outward expression of these men and women who were being filled with the Holy Ghost as Peter and John were laying their hands. He saw that they were being filled with the Holy Ghost and he wanted that power. Well, what could he have seen other than if if you stay consistent throughout the rest of the book of Acts, what he must have seen is all of those men and women speaking in tongues because it's what they saw at every other experience. It's what happened on the day of Pentecost. It's what happened in uh, Cornelius's house. It's what happened in Ephesus. We know it happened to Paul. Acts chapter nine, Paul was filled with the Holy Ghost. And we know it happened to him because he said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14, I speak in tongues more than all of you. So we know that it was Paul's evidence of being filled with the Holy Ghost. He spoke in tongues often, the Bible says. And so we as Pentecostals believe in a subsequent experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit where we receive power to work the works of God. We receive power to work the works of God. Jesus said in John 14 and verse 12, the works that I do. Now, let me break this down for you guys because I don't think people catch the fullness of this verse a lot of times, but I want you to catch it. Jesus said in John 14, 12, the works that I do you will do also and greater works than these because I'm going to be with my father. Now, if we look at John chapter 14, what was it that in context he was referring to? What was he referring to? He was referring to the fact that he was going to send the Holy Spirit when he got up to be with the father. Keep on going a few verses down. He said in verse 16, now this is only four verses after he said, you'll do the works that I'm doing and greater works because I'm going to be with the father. Listen to this, verse 16, and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. That'd be another good point, by the way. That would be another good point to speak to those that are oneness or apostolic, that believe there's only Jesus. Why would he say here, I'll ask the father and he'll give you another helper. Notice he didn't say, I'll send you back my spirit, which is what apostolic people believe, oneness people, that it's just the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of Christ that's in you. He said, I'll ask the father and he'll send you another comforter, not me, another one. I'll be with him. He'll send you another comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, the Trinity. We have access to the Trinity. And he said, um, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so what Jesus is truly saying is the reason that you'll be able to do the works that I'm doing and greater works is because I'll send you the Holy Spirit and you'll be empowered to do them as I've been empowered to do them. You see that? And so the powerful thought here from Christ is the reason you'll be able to do my works and greater works is because I will send you the baptism of the Holy Ghost, which will fill you with power from on high. Why would we want? No, their Bible's not written differently. They just interpret the scriptures differently, Diane. Why would we want to go through life as a Christian without the weaponry and the strength that Jesus provided for his children to accomplish the same works that he did. 
One other thing that people misinterpret often when reading that verse is when they say, see, we'll do greater works than Jesus. And they think that the greater means greater in quality, but it doesn't mean greater in quality. And yes, Jeff, this will be archived on YouTube as well as on Periscope and as well as Facebook as well. And it'll be on our podcast. But, but understand this. It doesn't mean we'll do greater works than Jesus in quality. You can't get better than raising the dead. You can't get better than cleansing the leper, opening people that were born blind, opening their eyes. You can't get better quality miracles than those. Jesus did the top quality that you could do. But quality is not what he's talking about. Greater in quantity, not in quality. Remember that Jesus only Jesus only ministered for a little bit over three years in his ministry. Think about that. Now, I haven't been preaching that long at all. I'm coming up on two decades of preaching. But think about it. In just 18 years that I've been preaching, I've already been preaching, what is that, six times longer than Jesus? I've already been ministering six times longer than Christ did at 18 years. So what that means is I've just had more time to do the works of Christ than Jesus had to do his own works. So it's important to know that he didn't mean you'd do better miracles than he did. He meant you'd have more time to do the miracles that he did. Greater works than these shall you do also. Greater works. Greater works. Let me answer some of these questions that are coming up real quick. Lisa and Rick, I don't know if it's Lisa or Rick, but they're asking, so tongues and prophecy. So should we be used, should we be being used more in prophecy or tongues? So here's, here's the way Paul was teaching it to the Corinthian church, Lisa and Rick. And for those that are listening, it's a good question. He was teaching, the, and as Brother Hagin taught this as well, that when tongues with interpretation is equal to the gift of prophecy. And Paul was teaching that in 1 Corinthians 14, that if you are in a church service and somebody gets up and gives a word in tongues, but there's no interpretation, he might as well not have spoken at all because nobody's understanding is fruitful. It's just confusion. It's just, it doesn't mean anything to the listeners. So if you do stand up and give a word to the body in tongues, there should be an interpretation in the language of the the assembly or the congregation. But he said, I prefer that you would more prophesy. Why? Because it's an all-in-one. You're just, by the inspiration of the Spirit, you are speaking to the listeners. You're speaking to the congregation in their known language and giving them an inspired word from the Lord. That's why he was saying that. So either one works, but there's got to be an interpretation if you give a word in tongues. Because what it was causing in their churches was confusion because people were just jumping up all over the place, giving words in tongues with no interpretation, and there was just confusion in the services. And he had to bring correction because God's not a God of confusion. That's a great question, Alexandra. Um, She's asking, um, how would you answer pastors who teach that speaking in tongues was not a heavenly language, but a foreign language. Um, Alexandra, to give you a deeper answer, I'm actually, this whole next book that I'm writing 
is covering that exact topic. I'm starting these spirit-filled believers guides to answer these, these questions scripturally. The very first one we're doing is on speaking in tongues. And that is one of the main questions we answer. That speaking in tongues, they they argue that Acts chapter 2, what the original Greek language means is that they spoke in foreign languages, not in heavenly languages. But you can see, if you look at all of the witness we have of Scripture, that that could not possibly be the case. Because Paul taught the exact opposite of what they're teaching. Paul taught differently than that. Notice if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14... Paul gave a completely different answer than pastors who teach that it was a foreign language. Listen to what Paul says. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not unto men, but unto God. For no one understands him and he utters mysteries in the spirit. So that's how I would answer a pastor that teaches speaking in tongues is the ability to speak foreign languages. Paul taught that it's not that. He said someone who speaks in tongues is not speaking unto men, which is what foreign languages are, but speaking under God and he's speaking mysteries in the spirit. That's 1 Corinthians 14.2. But we'll go into more depth on that. Um, I don't believe, Jeff, that the Holy Spirit baptism is needed to be raptured because you come into covenant of the body of Christ when you become a Christian, the only thing that's necessary for rapture is for you to be a part of the body of Christ. And then you are taken up to meet your Lord in the air. I agree with that, Chris. We do need to make sure that we use the Bible to interpret the Bible. That is what uh, happens to so many is that they start to take their experiences or they start to take things they've heard from other people or, or just their own opinions, and they let that be the thing that governs their Bible interpretation. But proper hermeneutical study, you let Scripture interpret other Scripture. And it's very, very important that we continue to do that because there's no other way to truly know what the Bible's teaching if we just continually read our own thoughts into the Scripture. David's asking, is the reason that God would give tongues plus interpretation in single moment over straight up prophecy Yes, I believe that that's part of it. Uh, the Bible, Paul did teach tongues is a sign to the unbeliever. So there may be unbelievers in the assembly and that operation of the Holy Spirit is a sign unto them. I totally believe that. No question. Brittany's asking, but there's a gift of tongues that others can hear in their own language as well, correct? Um, I wouldn't call that one of the gifts of the Spirit, Brittany, that there, there, you know, that does happen. And of course, we know that on the day of Pentecost, all the devout Jews that gathered in Jerusalem for the uh, celebration of Pentecost, they all, although they were from many other nations, they all, and I'll deal with this in the book as well, they all heard the 120 speaking in their own language. But what we believe is that on the day of Pentecost, the believers were not speaking foreign languages. They were speaking in a heavenly language, but God, this is the only thing that we can surmise from the full teaching on tongues, is that God worked a sign and a wonder allowing the, the devout Jews to hear them speaking in their own language. Because answer this question, answer this question, if they were speaking in foreign languages, then why 
would some of the people who were listening to them laugh and mock them and say, they're just drunk. Because remember, that happened on the day of Pentecost. People, some of the people pointed at them and laughed, said, they're just drunk. They're all a bunch of drunks. Since when does being drunk give you the ability to speak a foreign language fluently? That, that doesn't make sense. That argument makes no sense. Because some of the people hearing them speak fluently said, they're just drunk. Nobody goes to the bar and gets drunk. And when they're good and drunk, starts speaking fluent Mandarin Chinese. It's not, it's not one of the side effects of drunkenness. So what some of the people heard had to have been something that sounded like gibberish. And they said, they're just babbling. They're drunks. They're a bunch of drunks. Listen to them. But those that were there, that the sign and the wonder as it took place, they heard. Now, here's an important point. If you read it the way that it's truly written, what it was, what it was truly saying was each one of the one of the devout Jews heard all of them speaking in his own language. Think about that. What, what the Bible really is teaching here is each one of the foreigners heard the whole crowd of believers speaking his language. So to give you an example, if you had four people standing back to back to back, a Russian, someone from China, somebody from Poland, and somebody from Brazil, the person from Russia would have heard all 120 speaking Russian. The person from China heard the whole crowd speaking Chinese. The person from Poland heard Polish, and the person from Brazil heard Portuguese. They heard them all speaking in their language. You understand? Not many languages. They heard them all speaking their language. Well, they weren't all speaking languages from every nation under the sun simultaneously. It's not what was happening. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what they said. So it's very important to get that. Because there is a distinction to be made. Why were some people saying they were just drunk while others were hearing them all speak in their own language? It's because, to answer Brittany's question, it was a sign and a wonder. It was a sign and a wonder on that day. And I also believe that God was giving us his system of what should happen by being the first one to ever interpret tongues. I believe God himself was the first one to ever interpret tongues because that's what they were hearing. Heavenly language being interpreted to them in their language. And God did the interpretation. It's his system. It's what he always wanted in assemblies from there forward. Anytime it's done, Paul taught this, there should be an interpretation when someone gives a word in tongues. Very, very interesting. Because you have to weigh what happened in Acts chapter 2, which is narrative, with what Paul taught didactically regarding tongues in his letters to the Corinthian churches. It has to be done. You can't ignore what Paul said and only look at Acts and determine your doctrine from just that story. Neither can you just look at what Paul said and ignore the story in Acts. It has to all be looked at together and properly understood as to what it was talking about. And what happened in Acts was not something different than what Paul's talking about in Corinthians. You also can't divide them and say, well, they were two different things. They weren't two different things. They weren't two different things. They were the same thing. And it's important to know that. So we as believers, Pentecostals, believe in a subsequent experience of the baptism empowerment of the Holy Spirit that is marked by 
speaking in other tongues, which we truly believe from scripture is a heavenly language. And I'm going to make that uh, available for you guys when that Spirit-Filled Believer's Guide Volume 1 comes out on speaking in tongues. It will answer so many questions. Because there's not just questions like that. There's other questions like, should every believer be filled with the Holy Ghost? Is it God's desire? And the the question that was asked, is it uh, the ability to speak foreign languages for the purpose of evangelism or is it a heavenly language? You know, all these different things. And uh, Mary's asking, what about the personal prayer language? Because every time someone speaks in tongues, it doesn't have to be interpreted. You know, that's the hardcore, you know, anybody that comes against personal prayer language of tongues, that's the hardcore argument. All these people you speak in tongues, where's the interpretation? Where's the interpretation? People always go off on that. Where's the interpretation? But notice, there doesn't always have to be an interpretation of what's being spoken. Only if you're in an assembly and a word is given to the entire body. Paul actually told them, I speak in tongues more than all of you do. So he was saying that to make the point, I'm not coming down on speaking in tongues. We need it. I believe in it. What did he tell the Thessalonian church? Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophesying. I'm all for the moving of the Holy Ghost and the gifts of the spirit. I speak in tongues more than all of you do. But notice Paul didn't say, I speak in tongues and interpret more than all of you. No, he was speaking about his personal prayer language. What did he say? I will pray in the spirit, speaking about tongues, and in my known language. I will sing in the spirit and sing in my own language. So he's making a distinction. I'll do both. I'll pray in the spirit and with my understanding. I'll sing in the spirit and with my understanding. He didn't say I'll pray in the spirit and interpret it. He's talking about his personal prayer language. But he said when you come together as a body of believers and somebody gets up and starts to give this word to the church, well, if you're speaking to the church, They should be able to understand what's being said. And they should be able to have fruitful understanding that will build them up and encourage them or warn them or whatever the Holy Spirit is wanting to do. And that's the importance of interpretation in a body of believers. Very, very important. Let me move on to number three. I know we're kind of running out of time. Let me give you number three. Number one, salvation, the way we believe on that. Number two, the baptism of the Holy Ghost. But number three, divine healing divine healing. We need to understand that Pentecostals believe in divine healing. It's one of the fundamental doctrines of the Pentecostal church. We believe in divine healing. By the way, for those of you that would like to go further and do deeper study on the subject of Pentecostal doctrine, I would suggest a book to you that's really great. It's called Foundations of Pentecostal theology, foundations of Pentecostal theology. You can get it on Amazon. You can get the ebook through Logos Bible Software, logos.com, L-O-G-O-S.com. It's called Foundations of Pentecostal Theology by Duffield and Van Cleve. Phenomenal textbook. Number three is divine healing. We believe in Christ's sacrifice and our ability to take part in that redemptive access to healing. We believe it's for everybody. We don't believe it's just for some. We don't believe it's just for those that God picks and chooses. We believe that healing is something just like salvation, purchased for anybody that's willing to believe by faith to receive it, and that those who by faith access it can receive divine healing in their physical body. It's not limited 
to those God sovereignly picks and chooses. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2, 24, by whose stripes you were healed. That's for believers. Every person who believes in it can receive the gift of divine healing. We believe as Pentecostals in laying our hands upon the sick. Now, it's important that I say this to you. We, are, we believe exactly the opposite as many of those that are Reformed Calvinists who don't believe that the Holy Spirit and his gifts are active in the church any longer. They believe that when John the Revelator died on the Isle of Patmos, the last of the apostles of the Lamb, that the signs and wonders ceased because the church was established and the canon of Scripture completed and we no longer needed signs and wonders and miracles to continue because what God wanted to do was finished, which was establish the church and give us the scripture. But God still, you know, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he was healing then, he's still healing now. God is the Lord our God. He does not change, Malachi chapter 3. His nature is still the same. He was healing in the Old Testament. Think about this. He was healing people in the Old Testament before there was Jesus. And we've got a better covenant established upon better promises. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. So explain to me how Old Testament Jews could be afforded the benefit of divine healing through God's power. And those of us that are in Christ don't have the right to believe in divine healing. I mean, think about that. It's a ridiculous thought. That's a ridiculous thought that we don't have the ability to receive divine healing under a better covenant established upon better promises, but Jews under an old worse covenant had the ability to be healed because he said, I'm the Lord God that heals you and I'll, I'll, I'll put none of these diseases upon you that I've brought upon the Egyptians. But we have to sit here in the New Testament and, and, and be sick and diseased because our Jesus is no longer healing his people? Ridiculous. There's nothing in scripture, by the way, that even hints that this is the case. Nothing. Nothing. There's nothing. In fact, do you know healing was still being seen in the early church? If you want to go back to the early church fathers and their writings, they were still seeing miracles in the early church in the uh, you know second century, third century, and we're still seeing it, seeing it today. Jesus is still moving. We're seeing, we're seeing these things all the time. We see healing and miracles all the time. God's touching his people. So it's important. We believe and we stand on the power of divine healing. And then number four, let me give you this before we pray. We believe, and this is a very important one, we believe in the soon coming of Jesus Christ, the rapture of the church. We believe in the rapture of the church, that he's coming very soon. We don't believe in a post-tribulation rapture. We don't believe in a mid-tribulation rapture. We don't believe in a partial a tribulation rapture. We believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church that exempts us from all of the wrath of God. Of course I would, Michael. Would I lay my hands on a, a person that was sick with COVID-19? Of course I would. Of course. I've laid hands with people with communicable diseases all over the place. I'm not, I'm not ashamed or afraid to do that. See, we have to make up our minds. Do these hands heal the sick like the Bible says, or do they catch and spread diseases? You have to make that up in your mind. Very, very important. Because we either have to believe what the Bible says, or we have to believe what some other report says. Somebody from the news, somebody from the government. 
I choose to believe the Bible. I choose to believe that God knew what he was doing when he said, lay your hands on the sick. And we do lay our hands on the sick and believe that when we do, they'll be healed according to scripture. No question. And so finally, it's important for us to believe in the soon coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, which keeps us in expectation and holiness waiting for the coming of our Lord. And we be- the reason we believe in that, the, re- the reason we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, and I covered this last week, I believe it was, I give you seven Bible reasons to believe in a, a, a pre-tribulation rapture, and then we covered all five positions on the tribulation later in the week. If you missed that, go back and listen to it because it will... It will open your eyes as to why we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. But one of the reasons is because as Pentecostals, we believe we have dominion on the earth. How can you believe in dominion? That we have dominion over the devil, we have dominion over demon spirits, we have dominion over sickness and disease, all that's wicked. And then somehow we're supposed to believe that we have to stay here as the earth then falls into the hands of a demonic power a Satan-filled man halfway through the tribulation, the Antichrist, who will take authority over the whole earth and enforce his evil will. But Christians have to be here and go through all that, even though we've been given power over the devil and we've been given dominion in this world to cast out devils. It's not true. And if if you miss this, I, I highly encourage you either to go back on the podcast or go back on YouTube and watch that broadcast on seven Bible reasons. Number three, Sandra, was divine healing. We believe in divine healing. We lay our hands on the sick. We believe 1 Peter 2.24, by whose stripes you were healed. The, the works Christ did, we will do also, and greater works than these because we have the Holy Spirit. Michael, you have to choose to believe the word of God over the words of men. Obviously, they say the, the virus spreads through touch. Um. And, and I'm not denying that that's the case. I'm sure that that it takes place for some, some people that have had it happen. But we have to believe that when we lay our hands on the sick, God will do what he said he would do. No question about it. No question about it. And so, and finally, number four, the soon coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll give you a fifth one as well, because I feel like it's very important that we, we mention this, but also one of the things that's it's the foundation of our faith, we believe that the scriptures, this right here, the Bible, the 66 books that make up the Protestant Bible are the inspired, inerrant word of the Almighty God. We believe that as Pentecostals. This Bible... 66 books that make up the Protestant Bible are the inspired, inerrant word of the Almighty God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, no error within it, and this word is just as much God as the one who sits on the throne. No question. This is the final word on any kind of doctrinal belief system, moral belief system, anything. This word of God is the final word word without question. Everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness is found in this word. It's inspired. It's inerrant. It is God's holy written word. And there's nothing like it. And there's nothing above it. It's the highest force in all of the universe without question, without question. Love you, Hank. 
And so it's important we believe these things. Let me let me recap quickly, if you're just logging on, five things that, that really mark us, and there's others, but I want to give you the main ones, five things that really mark us as Pentecostals. Number one, what we believe about salvation, that we play a part, God plays a part, and we got to live holy and righteous as we're saved. Number two, that baptism of the Holy Spirit as a subsequent experience, that the evidence of speaking in tongues is the sign we've received it. Number three, divine healing, that we lay our hands on the sick. We believe them to recover. We believe the Bible says healing is for everybody. It's not just for some. It's for all who believe by faith in the redemptive work of Christ. Number four, the soon return of our Lord Jesus Christ with a pre-tribulation rapture, that we will leave the earth before the wrath of God is poured out upon this earth. And number five, we believe that the Bible is the inerrant, inspired word of the almighty God. There's nothing above it. There's nothing beside it. There's nothing like it. It is God's. Did you know, let me just, let me say this before we pray. Did you know that there's a word in the Greek New Testament? Thank you, Lisa and Rick. Did you know that there's a word in the Greek New Testament that's not used anywhere else in the entire New Testament? And it describes the Bible. It describes the Bible. Go with me to 2 Timothy. I want to read it to you. Listen to it. And this is one of the reasons I love the English Standard Version of the Bible. It gets things like this right because it's word for word. As closely you know, as you can get, the NASB, the, the ESV are, are more uh, formal equivalence translations. But it got this right. I like this. 2 Timothy 3.16. Listen. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. That phrase, all scripture is breathed out by God, is a Greek word that's not found anywhere else in the New Testament, and the Greek word is theonustos. Theonustos. It means theo, meaning God, noustos, meaning the wind or the breath, it's the breath of God. That's why we have pneumatology. It's the study of the Holy Spirit of the breath of the wind of God. This word, theonostos, two words pushed together. It means literally, as the ESV renders it, God breathed. And Paul taught Timothy all scripture, all of it, Genesis to Revelation, the whole body of scripture is breathed out by God, all of it. It is the God-breathed substance of his divine word. That's why it carries power. That's why when we quote it, when we confess it, when we speak it, things have to change. It carries power to perform. His word cannot come back empty, nor will it return void. It accomplishes what he sends it to do and prospers in the thing whereunto he sent it. And so, this word, yeah, I love it, emphasizo and theonostos. Theonostas, powerful. It is the holy word of God. And I want to pray for you because these things are important. We sing about it, we talk about it, but it's important to know that what we believe matters. What we believe about salvation matters. The empowerment of the Holy Ghost, it matters. When we see the sick healed, when we see lives changed, people delivered from demon spirits, people delivered from drugs. That's the power of the Holy Ghost at work. That's the empowerment of the baptism of the Holy Spirit 
It is the weapons of our warfare that are not carnal. They're not carnal. We believe in divine healing. We believe that Christ is coming soon. And we believe in the mighty power of this word. Bow your head. Father, in Jesus' name, every person that's watching, if they are not filled with the Holy Ghost, if they're not baptized in the Spirit of God, I pray today that you would empower them and baptize them with the Holy Ghost, with the evidence of speaking in other tongues in Jesus' name. Let the fire of God fall upon every one of them that fell on the day of Pentecost and fill them now with the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. I pray for those that are sick. I pray for those that are diseased. I take authority. I take authority over every sickness and every disease that's plaguing the people of God. And I command it to go in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Receive healing virtue in Jesus' name. Be made whole by the power of God in Jesus' name. Lord, I take authority over depression and anxiety. Make your people whole today. Peace in their mind, joy in their heart. I command suicidal thoughts to go. We pray for all those that are, I've had several write in, that they're on their way to surgeries or believing for, touch their bodies, Lord. Touch their bodies in Jesus' name. Make them whole. Let I pray you get all the praise and glory for what happens in their life. In Jesus' mighty name, we thank you and we give you praise. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let me encourage you. There's already been those of you that have done it. Many of you have already sown today, but let me encourage you to take a moment. What are we believing for? This is a generation, as David said earlier, that needs, I'm talking about David Condon, not David, King David in the Bible. (laughs) This is a generation that needs the power of God. Can I just give you something? Every place I've been, doesn't matter where I go, doesn't matter what people group, it doesn't matter the age of the people. Everywhere I've been, when people see the mighty power of the Holy Ghost, they're hungry for it. Don't let anybody lie to you and say, well, this this is a generation that's just not hungry for the things of God. That's not been my experience. And I don't care if they're 10 years old. I don't care if they're 90 years old. When people experience the mighty power of the Holy Ghost, they are hungry and they're engaged and God changes their life. That's what we're standing for. That's what we're doing. It's what we're believing for. And when you sow seed, notice you're not going to just uh, be blessed personally, which you will, because the Bible teaches that we receive blessing when we sow seed. But it's not just that. But by your faith and faithfulness, you are sending the power of the Holy Ghost. Did you ever think of it that way? You are sending the power of the Holy Ghost as you sow seeds. You become a missionary with your money by sowing seed. And that's what we're doing. We're expecting God to touch a generation by the mighty power of his spirit as we preach the gospel, that lay hands on the sick, command demons to lose people, let them go. And we've seen it happen. You know, There can be people that doubt if they want to. We've watched it happen many times, many times. And so I want to encourage you, those of you, if you haven't partnered with us, would you pray and consider becoming a partner with Miracle Word Ministries. It's very easy to do. You can go to the website and click the partner button and set up a form there where you can give weekly, monthly, whatever, and stand with us in faith. What we've been asking people to do, our prayer, Carol and I, is that we would have a 1,000 families that would stand with us at $85 a month or more, believing for a generation to be changed. Many people are already doing it. You see many of their names on the screen below. They're standing with us, they're sowing, and we appreciate them and we pray for them weekly. 
But we're asking now, would you be one of those that would dedicate yourself to taking the gospel to this generation by partnering with this ministry? If that is you and the Holy Spirit's prompting you, then go to the website today, miracleword.com, click the partner tab, and you can set it up there. If you're feeling, those of you who are speaking, God speaking to you, to sow a one-time gift today, a seed, into this ground of evangelism and miracles, signs and wonders, there's many ways you can do it. Hashtag donate in the comments, Cash App, Venmo, PayPal, but also you can go to the website as well and do the very same thing. You click on the Give tab. Those of you that like to sow by writing a check, our uh, address is at the bottom of every page on the website. I want to say thank you. Thank you, Julie and Tracy. We appreciate it. We're going to be sending this book out to everybody this month that's sewing at $100 or more. The End by Dr. Mark Hitchcock, 500 plus pages. Uh, Jenna's already mailing them out um, to those that have sewn and given this month. And listen, if you've not done this, if you've sewn and you've not claimed your offer yet, go to miracleword.com forward slash offer. The reason we ask you to do that is because some of these giving methods uh, like Cash App, Venmo, others, hashtag donate, they don't give us your address to mail your gift. And so um, that's why we're asking you, if you've not done that to claim yours, please do that on the website so we know where to mail your gift and say thank you. And we appreciate you. Thanks for everybody that's ordering further faster. Really, really appreciate that. And of course, Miracle Word University, we've got new students coming in all the time. And uh, we'd like to encourage you to do the same thing. We put all of our courses together in one as a bundle that we give you one of the courses for free. It's a 28% discount. If you've never checked out Miracle Word University, go to miraclewordu.com and you can browse all the courses that we have there. New ones are coming soon and uh, I know you guys will appreciate it. And if you don't get our magazine, we have a new magazine that's gonna be coming out um, very quickly for the summer, very shortly. And if you'd like, thank you, Brother Ted and Ashley. If you'd like to be a part of getting this magazine, go to miracleword.com forward slash live. You can fill out the form there and you'll not only will you get this magazine every time it's released, but you'll also get this devotional ebook that I wrote, Praise, Laugh, Repeat Devotional, 40 Days to Overwhelming Joy. I'll email you this as well, absolutely free uh, for everybody that goes and grabs the magazine uh, at that link there, miracleword.com forward slash live. Let me just say a couple of other things. If you don't have our app, you can get you can get in on Miracle Word Radio, which one runs 24-7 on the app. And it's free in the Google Play Store, in the Apple App Store. And if you don't have it, download it for free today and pop the radio on and uh, let it bless you. Let it build your faith throughout the day. It's going to be great. We're going to be lo- launching some other things through the website soon to continue to build your faith in other ways. But um, I'm looking forward to that. I love you guys very, very much and uh, appreciate you hanging with me. Now, let me just say this before I go. Tomorrow, tomorrow I'll be preaching again on Faith Broadcasting Network at noon, noon Eastern time. And it's going to be for about two hours. And um, you're going to want to, of course, we'll share it again on the Facebook page, everything like that. But I'm going back to be with our friends, Dr. Uh, Andre and Jenny uh, Raybert in Marco Island. And uh, over by Naples, Florida, we're going to be preaching all around the world, 80 plus million homes 
tomorrow. We'll be touched potentially with the gospel of Christ, plus everybody that logs in through the Faith Broadcasting app, and then, of course, social media. So we're going to hit the world again tomorrow. Um, Today is Thursday, right? Yeah. So tomorrow, (laughs) we're going to hit it 12 noon. Don't miss it. It's going to be live on Facebook, YouTube, and uh, we're looking forward to that. It's going to be great. And so we'll post it on our page too so you don't miss it, but um, don't miss it. And of course, I'll jump on with you as we're headed over on my phone tomorrow as we do do normally when we're going there, Uh, but you'll enjoy it. I love you guys so very much. Thanks for hanging with me. And um, for those of you that have never been a part of Miracle Word University, enjoy this preview of our newest course, Mountain Moving Faith. Thanks to everybody that gave. I love you guys. And by the way, didn't want to forget to tell you this. I'm going to be back on the broadcast with you guys tomorrow night at 9 p.m. 9 p.m. Eastern time tomorrow, Friday night. Don't miss it. It's going to be great. I love you guys. Talk to you soon. So in this video, I want to quickly show you something that I was speaking about in a previous video, and that is when we were talking about the measure of faith, uh, one of the warnings that uh, I give you and that you find in the scripture is to not exceed your measure of faith. And there's a reason that we talk about this. It is, I mentioned in the uh, previous video that it's damaging to you if you try to operate outside of your measure of faith in the same way that it would be, uh, I use the analogy of going to the gym. And if you tried to lay down on the bench press and put more weight on the bar than your body can handle, although you might be able to get to that weight one day, you're not there today. And so trying to operate in that level of strength when you're not there would end up being damaging to your body. If you didn't injure your uh, shoulders or strain your muscles lifting that weight, you would actually just drop the weight on yourself and maybe crush your chest. And so it's important to understand that you should never exceed your measure of faith. As we showed you in Romans chapter 12, the Bible says God has apportioned or dealt out to every man a measure of faith. And so it's important that you understand that you are currently at a certain level of faith. And uh, as we read that, uh, I'll read it to you from the NASB in this video, uh, Romans 12, 3. The Bible says, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So there is a measure to your faith. It's at a certain level right now. You should never try to do things that are beyond that level. I'll give you an example of that in a bit, but let's look at 1 Corinthians 7, 17. 1 Corinthians 7, 17. Listen to this. Paul writes, only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. You see that? Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. So don't walk outside of the manner in which God's called you and assigned you and purposed you. Let's go on. Second Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. Listen to this. But we will not boast beyond our measure. You see that? We'll not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere, which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far 
as you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. So understand what Paul's teaching here. We're not overextending our measure. We're not going beyond what we should be doing. We are operating within the sphere of our apportioned measure of faith. It's important to stay within your measure. Ephesians chapter four and verse seven, the Bible says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then finally, let me read to you first Peter chapter four and verse 11. The Bible says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God and whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So from these verses of scripture that I'm reading you, you can see and understand that there's a measure of faith in which you're currently standing that God has blessed you with and that you've grown to that level that, as Paul taught, you should never try to operate outside of your measure of faith. And one of the ways to ensure that you never operate outside the measure of your faith, and this is so very important to listen and adhere to this thought, one of the best ways, and I'd say it's the best way to ensure you'll never operate outside your measure of faith to the harm of yourself, your family, your ministry, whatever, is to only ever do what God called you to do and only ever do what he is directing you to do. Now that's the stuff leaders should be made of.